Welcome to Bruin Source. This is Zed. This is Kevin. And we come to you after UCLA football finally has an offensive coordinator. And not really finally, it, it moved pretty quickly, actually. Yeah, not official yet, but uh, we've heard the public comments and uh, many people have commented on it at this point. So, yeah, pretty much all it's all done. Yeah, Eric Bieniemy, UCLA offensive coordinator. Um, he was obviously on the, the short list that we talked about last week. I think from a PR perspective, let's start there. Uh, this is a big win for UCLA. I mean, it's a splashy name type of hire. And I think the basic sentiment around this hire has been very positive across the football media. Yeah, and I don't think we can discount that. Uh, I know that, generally speaking, you don't want to hire the splashy person. You want to hire the right person and all the old adages that kind of go with that line of thinking. But I do think that there's some importance you can place on that here just because Deshaun Foster, I mean, let's let's face it, he didn't come with any previous coaching experience. Um, you know, UCLA was facing the image of losing their head coach to another interconference offensive coordinator position. Um, so the, I don't think you can, you know, discount the fact that UCLA is getting a Super Bowl champion offensive coordinator who has been a big name in the in NFL circles and, you know, recruits are going to know his name. Um, there, no one's going to have to learn who Eric Bieniemy is if any of these kids have been watching any sort of football for the last, you know, five years. Um, and I do think there's there's something to, to say about that. There's something to say about that. It, he's obviously a respected uh, football mind, respected coach amongst basically every kind of coaching circle you you, you talk about. Um so, so from that perspective, yeah, definitely a big win. I, I know it hasn't been officially announced yet, but it sounds like it's basically a done deal now. Uh, whatever contract negotiations are happening, um, I'm actually surprised it leaked as, as early as it did and that he publicly commented on it uh, before UCLA actually announced it, since UCLA is generally pretty conservative with these kinds of things. But I, I think... It's pretty much a done deal at this point, um, and so the media has been talking about it and whatnot. Let's talk about this from a fit perspective, though, because I think when we talked about this last week, there were some obvious concerns with this. We can talk about all the the good PR here, but I think my biggest concern with this hire is that Eric Bieniemy has not coached in college for 12 years now. And with that, that time period being removed away from the college game with so much change amongst the college football landscape over the last even two, three years, let alone last 12 years. How does Eric Bieniemy kind of fit in within that, especially with recruiting changes and NIL and all that kind of stuff? What are your thoughts there? Because I have some, but I'll, I want to hear yours first. Well, so naturally, when you hire coaches from the NFL, the first thought is, um, and particularly a guy like Biennemi, who has interviewed for head coaching jobs in the NFL, um, is it, you know, are, are you really interested in the stuff that comes with college, which is recruiting a bunch of 18-year-olds, re-recruiting your own roster, um, 
managing donors and boosters and, and that stuff has not gotten easier with time um you know it's today the lifeblood of any program and particularly for ucla so um obviously that's always going to be a concern now with eric b enemy i think you do have to look into his his history a bit here uh his title at ucla i believe was recruiting coordinator uh you know his, his last year here so he has done it. He was known as a good recruiter when he was here. Now, like you said, that was uh, you know 2005. So we're we're going almost 20 years back here, just under 20 years back um, from when we can look at this. But you know that that was there before. Um, you know, we what, UCL I think can appreciate this. Um, you're getting a coach that's motivated to do well, just generally speaking. Uh, because Eric Bieniemy, I think his name's getting thrown around the mud a little bit here, and I guess it's a question: Is he motivated to do well so that he can then return to the stage that he really wants to return to? And that's if that's his motivation, that's totally fine. Um, no one would blame him for that. But how do you do well? The only way you can do that is by going out there and getting players and building an offense, um, and. and is the enemy motivated to do that? Is is he motivated by all the stuff that goes with that? Uh, if he wants to progress with his own career, like it's in in his own best interest to do so. So that's where, again, it's a wait and see game. Definitely a wait and see game. Um, I I. So I'll just I'll just say this. I'm excited about the hire, but I, again, for that recruiting reason, it, it does make me a little worried about it, uh, only because. We've seen the story already with a, a coach who went was you know very well respected uh, in the college ranks, went to the NFL for years, and then tried to come back to college. Uh, and obviously, the game had changed so much in that time frame; it did not end well. And that coach was Chip Kelly. Um, does Eric Bieniemy have the willingness to deal with NIL and the kind of modern recruiting landscape? I hope for the reasons you cited, he does have interest in that because we talked about this again last week. I think Deshaun Foster is a young, energetic kind of guy who who's going to hit the recruiting trail. Um, but can we have an OC who doesn't actually engage with that? I don't think we can afford to do that uh, at this juncture of of uh, where our program's at. So I do think Eric Bieniemy definitely needs to start engaging as soon as he can with the recruiting trail, with recruits, with NIL, with men of Westwood, with all of these different facets now that you need to engage with to get talent in through the door. Um, that being said, I think his name will pull a lot of weight in that department. So it's it's there, there's obviously that aspect of it. Um, we just mentioned that earlier. It's just a, ma a matter of does he put the time and energy into it? And that's that's always the one thing I'm a little hesitant about with a coach coming back from a long stint in the NFL uh, back to college, and especially for a guy who, you know, has seen so much success in the NFL and was interviewing for NFL head coaching jobs and uh, you know, was kind of seen as this golden boy for a little while in the NFL recruiting or recruiting or NFL coaching scene. Uh, that luster has has worn off a little bit. 
does he use this as a job for a couple of years to kind of climb back into those ranks? Maybe, and hopefully. And if, if that's the case, that means he's done a very good job with, with UCLA, and that's fine. We can go, go figure out the way forward from that point. But I think the recruiting piece of it is, is going to make or break his tenure here, personally. Yeah, so this is the uh, the recruiting side. Now, again, uh, you know, motivation and all that, you know, we, we talked that side of it. There's then the football side of this, um, which is – you know, we said this last time, NFL guy, how does he work with college kids, uh, which he hasn't done in a long time, right? So you that 100-page playbook that you taught to Patrick Mahomes may not work for Ethan Garbers, uh, right? Uh, the All the big complex reads and such that pros who have their entire days and nights to spend studying your stuff, um, because if they don't, they're going to get cut. Well, that doesn't apply to college kids. Um, and, and so, you know, that's always, again, the other side, the football side of this. You know, where does that all land with Eric Bien-Aimé? Um, That's That's another wait-and-see thing. Um, you know, generally speaking, I think the opinions on him have, have been really bipolar because the, everyone associated with the Chiefs seems to have a very high opinion of him. Um, like, he was with the Chiefs, supposedly, the week of the AFC title game. Um, we don't talk about that and game. We, we don't talk, and I, I know you don't talk about that game. Uh, you know, so, like, they all, and, and they, they decided, like, during the year that they missed him and that that's why, like, his accountability and such, that they were struggling without it. So, accountability, you know, th- those th- those are words really heavily associated with Eric Bieniemy. And then there's the whole Washington situation that happened this year, um, which is, you know, obviously, I don't know how much you exactly you can take away from that. He clearly had a point to prove by saying, hey, uh, I'm going to go to the worst situation in the league. And boy, did he go to the worst situation in the league. And the results were what you would expect for the worst situation in the league. Uh, so that's, that's a hard one to judge. Again, I think considering that Sam Howell was the quarterback finishing like 21st uh, in total offense in the league is not a terrible result. And then finally is how he left, right? So he made it a point in the statement to say, I wasn't fired, I chose to leave. Um, and so you, the, the story behind that supposedly is he was offered the running backs job um, with, with an assistant associate head coach title. Uh, and he said he didn't want that. Um, so all signs would point because he chose to leave Patrick Mahomes for the Washington commanders. So all signs would point to an individual that is highly motivated. He's not just doing this for no reason. Um, but this is UCLA. We've seen people come to LA and their views on life change pretty drastically. I'm curious to see what this transition period looks like, um, especially when he's installing the scheme or his scheme and how our players react to it and how he actually adjusts the scheme to the college game. Um, if you do a little research on Eric Bieniemy, especially that transition from the Chiefs to the Commanders, a lot of the Commanders players, especially the wide receivers, Uh, and quarterbacks really talk about how complex the scheme is, how intense the enemy is in terms of getting that scheme across. Um, I mean, 
it's it's not something that he's going to be able to just lift and shift from his previous tenures in the NFL to the college game. I mean, we're we're talking about, you know, 18 to to 21, 22-year-old kids here uh who are also balancing school um to some degree with with their football. He needs to figure out how to take his kind of West Coast style offense and simplify it for the college game. And I think that is going to be the second big thing for him to figure out besides recruiting is how can he actually translate this successfully uh, to UCLA. That doesn't even get into the, the kind of talent aspects of what UCLA might have, right? I think we have a solid quarterback. I think we have some good receivers. I think we have talent at running back as well. What we don't have is an O-line. And I think offenses, regardless of what kind of scheme you're running, really pre- are predicated on how well your line plays. And so will Eric Bieniemy be able to scheme around that, at least in his first year, to be somewhat successful? Uh, I think if he can get over that early hurdle to at least demonstrate, hey, I can put together a, a, a good offense here, we can build on that. If it completely falls flat on his face... Um, then I think we're we're going to be in trouble here. Yeah, and so the recruiting side of this, we're going to learn in like the next two to three months how, how the answer to that question, right? Because if we start reading stuff about, and, and, and it's easy to find these things, right? Like, hey, UCLA is recruiting me really hard. I'm hearing from Eric Bieniemy. I love talking to Eric Bieniemy. Like you start hearing that kind of stuff. You start to hear like quarterbacks talk about, oh, I want to go be Patrick Mahomes over there then you've learned the answer to the question because like that's the obvious pitch right which is hey i've won super bowls i've been around some of the best players in the game come play for me i'll I'll show you what a pro offense looks like you'll be ready to go we've sold worse shit than this to to recruits and and gotten a lot of good players uh, at ucla so the pitch i i think there's enough there so now it, it, do you see enough of hey i'm i like talking to eric b enemy I, I i like uh, we're forming a great relationship. It's obviously the head coach too, but but the enemy and the whole staff. If by spring you don't see a lot of that, then uh, you know there's there's concern. The offense part, we'll learn more of the, that stuff in the fall. Yeah, I think we're gonna definitely have to wait for camp. But what what he's generally done with his offenses across the, his NFL tenure, I mean. It's been, he's obviously an Andy Reid disciple. It's been a heavily West Coast uh, scheme. A lot of RPO. Generally, he's been pass happy, though. I mean, let's see how that kind of adjusts to not having Patrick Mahomes or NFL caliber talent at, at quarterback to be able to run that kind of offense. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this, how what he actually st- tries to install in fall. It's, it's going to be. It's going to be a fun thing to watch, actually, to kind of see how our players are adjusting, how we're learning uh, a new playbook. And, and ultimately, like that spring game, which is now back at the Rose Bowl, April 27th, I believe, that spring game is actually going to be somewhat interesting because not only for the reasons of it actually being a spring game again, but also just to see what this offense is going to actually look like on a field. 
uh, with with the personnel that we have. I'm I'm actually really excited for the spring game. Probably the first time in years at this point uh, since we we diminished it to whatever Chip Kelly was doing at the spring showcase or whatever. I mean, I haven't I haven't actually attended or really watched it in years just because it hasn't been really anything to watch but yeah. but you know spring spring practice is also going to be open and that'll be kind of interesting to try to try to see what's going on with that so i mean i think Eric, the enemy has some uh, opportunities here to to not only demonstrate early on that hey there's something uh fun or something cool something interesting from a from an offense perspective that he can run but also for the recruiting trail he needs to kind of nail nail that early on, so recruits actually understand what what they're getting into, and it can be a good pitch for them. Yeah, let's talk about the other thing you mentioned real quick. Um, we're gonna have a spring game. Uh, that just sounds like you know reinventing the wheel, but but it's reinventing the wheel. Uh, Chip Kelly's spring showcase was punting practice. It was like people get to drake and like you just watch them punt for like an hour <laughs> and that's the end no that was the, that was the spring showcase if you remember right right like and this isn't even like live special teams in a game where like guys are like running really fast and it can even be a little fun there this is practice special teams so like you're lining up your blocking and guys are just like getting in the right positions so to have an actual spring game and such and have an actual spring practice to follow like as a fan um it's gonna be great because you know those of us that like ucla we are interested in that now uh you know we weren't maybe interested in that last year definitely not um obviously there's there's a lot to watch there uh but but there's some other movement on the staff besides eric Bianami. he's obviously the the biggest one but there's some kind of weird stuff going on. I I don't know really what to make of it, but for instance, there's there's word or rumors around Ted White, who was the former quarterbacks coach at um, with the Houston Texans in the NFL uh, in 2022, as potentially coming in as quarterbacks coach after we recently hired Billy Fessler for that same role. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, Ted White's another NFL guy uh, recently, and then he, he he's coached in college before as well as the UFL, uh, United Football League. So he, he has some interesting experience there, but I, I don't really know what's going on with Fessler um, and why we're trying to fill that out with a new coach. Uh, and then the other one that we have is, is the weirdest one. Uh, Darren Usher, who came over from Oregon as the uh, director of recruiting, has all of a sudden decided to go back to Oregon, um, which I guess makes sense because Chip Kelly was the one who actually hired him for that role. So unsure of who we will actually pull into to... to replace him but the staff is slowly starting to kind of come together at this point though there's still some open questions around who's doing what and uh who we're gonna who we're gonna fill out with these last couple of roles because i think we still have a running back running backs coach spot open and a tight end spot open 
So I don't know. Oh, and then linebacker as well because Ken Norton Jr. left. So those are some three pretty important uh, position coaching roles that we need to fill. And I don't know what what uh, what that's going to actually look like. Yeah, so Ted White, um, you can kind of see where Deshaun Foster's network leads him, right? I mean, uh, was – had a, had some small stints in the NFL as like a practice squad player. Perhaps he ran into, you know, Deshaun at some stop uh, or another, um, and had some coordinator experience at you know some lower level schools, HBCUs, so on and so forth. And then this year, you know, went to the Texans. So this is the case where you are taking a guy from the NFL, but. Largely, this was his first year in the NFL. He, he was a college guy before that. And uh, you would hope that uh, he knows what the drill is when it comes to college. Uh, so, you know, that's interesting that, you know, obviously we, really, we, we have to let go of Billy Fessler. Um, but, but otherwise, uh, interesting hire. And, you know, this is, again, where Deshaun's network is leading him, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, the QB coach has been kind of interesting in general because Jerry Neuheisel was in that role. He got moved to wide receiver coach. Um, they brought Fessler in, and now it sounds like Fessler might be on his way out and Ted White might be moving in. Uh, so kind of kind of interesting to, to see that kind of uh, get get turned around a little bit and... I really hope we, we hold on to Jerry. Uh, it sounds like everybody loves Jerry. Uh, he seems to be a good coach. I think he's produced some, some good results on the field wherever he's coached. Uh, he's obviously a very proud Bruin, um, and, he, and he actually recruits uh, and is very young. So I, I hope we can hold on to Jerry. I, I hope none of this like round robin of him getting switched around every two months to a new role is is going to leave any sort of sour taste in his mouth but he has obviously worked with Deshaun Foster for the last several years um, on the staff so um, I think that that relationship will will be good as well anything else yeah what I would hope yeah the only, the only thing on Jerry is I, I would think what's going on there is like you always have that one coach who's gonna get moved around to a lot of positions because like they're just getting experience and in a lot of different positions, and then maybe they get groomed to be the coordinator next. So maybe that's what's going on with Jerry. Um, who knows? Hey, I I love Jerry. Obviously, he is a Bruin legend in many ways for that Texas game where he came in and led us to victory. Uh, obviously, the, the blue and gold blood runs deep in that family at this point, so uh, that would be a really fun story to, to watch Jerry uh, kind of come full circle and take on a coordinator role at some point at UCLA and, you know, hopefully to much larger and better results as his dad uh, did as a coach here. But um, that is a that is a future future state thing that we can we can talk about if that ever happens. Anything else on the, the football side that we we didn't talk about? Nope. I think it's time. Yeah, that's why I was asking. I'm trying to trying to avoid moving on here, but I, I think we we have to. Um, so last week, basketball uh, had its rivalry week. At home this time, um, I think we were all feeling good about it. 
based on the earlier result this year at Galen Center. And uh, this game did not turn out as well. And I would say, I would go as far as saying this was probably the most frustrating loss of the season. Am I overreacting? I No, I don't think you are. Because when the Utah loss happened, we were in the midst of our big losing streak. And it just felt like anything could happen at that point. And we had written this off to a lost season. Um, I think what's perhaps a little bit more alarming about this one is it looked like we had turned a corner. And even the Utah game, I mean, UCLA could lose a game like we lost to Utah in any season uh, where, hey, you it's generally a good game back and forth. Um, Utah is a tournament-level team, and in the end, they hit a lucky tip-in, and that was, that was the game. You can lose a game like that at any time. What was so disappointing about this game in particular is that it just, it, this felt like, the losing streak. This felt like bad the bad version of UCLA that you hoped you wouldn't have to see again this year. Uh, and and we all know progression doesn't happen in a straight line, but damn it, like we've seen enough like squiggly lines this year. We were hoping for this one to start squiggling up. And to see that happen in this game against the rival uh, in what looked to be, I mean, pretty raucous environment like it, the fans showed up for this it one. was loud from in there everything i could tell yeah you you were there right so from everything i could tell and it looks like they were waiting for something to happen in that second half to get back on them um and they just it just never happened so to start the game i think obviously we started off the game very poorly but we climbed into it and it was tied at half and it felt going into that that halftime like okay the momentum has really shifted here UCLA's kind of woken up we are playing defense we are not letting them you know shoot open threes anymore we're rebounding the ball better and you know the it seemed to be the team had woken up a little bit uh, and the crowd got into it. I think in that last couple of minutes of the first half, it was a very loud stadium. Uh, you know, the fans were on their feet. They were there was actually a good, good atmosphere in Poly Pavilion. That second half, though, I mean, I don't know what happened. The wheels just completely fell off the the truck here. I mean, the, the, there was look. Offense, we've talked about. We go through cold, cold streaks, especially this season. Like it's just, it's a facet of this team right now. We're not young. We're we're too young. We're not experienced enough to really execute the offense at a high level at this point. We don't have the shot makers, um, or or the guys playing with the confidence to to consistently just keep scoring. But what that has happened over the last couple of months is that. The team still locks in on defense. And so even though we're missing shots, we will defend the hell out of the other team and we will get second chance looks and rebound the ball really well. This game felt like, like you said earlier, one of those earlier season games where the shots weren't falling and there was no energy on defense and it was just complete, complete just let down on all ends of the floor. Uh, and I think that is basically the entirety of the second half and 
let's be let's be very clear here. It's not like Southern Cal was playing really good basketball in this game either. I mean, we there were points in the game where we were climbing back into get the, this thing, yet we just could not get that key stop to actually you know get it within that three points, get it within four points. It just whenever we tried to pick up a couple of, of easy shots or get some momentum, it was like we just completely fell apart. And the biggest reason I haven't even mentioned this yet are the turnovers. I've never seen a Mick Cronin team turn the ball over like we did on Saturday. It was embarrassing. Yeah, so that right there, I think you hit the nail on the head. Because if you were to give SC one credit in this game, I think they were very focused and locked in on defense, just from an intensity standpoint. Um, it, it, uh, it was very clear that they knew that UCLA was not a great outside shooting team. The way that they doubled Bona specifically, um, you know, for example, not not giving him this obvious pass right in front of him, but one where he'd have to look around and move around a little bit to find it. I thought that was good. And how they played Dylan Andrews, really like making sure he didn't have a lot of space to get off the mid-range that, that he's been doing well in. But honestly, USC is not very good. Um, they made so many mistakes in this game. They were so indisciplined that it was a miracle that this game was close because the amount of times that UCLA just drove into the, the big guys, bounced it off people's feet, um, and turned the ball over to give the likes of Boogie Ellis and Isaiah Collier a head of steam running at the defense. It was mind-boggling. Um, and I think in so, so the stats over here, 35 possessions in the second half, 12 of them turnovers. So a third of the time that we had the ball, we turned the ball over. A team like this that is prone to these long shooting slumps, that's just not good enough. It's not nearly good enough. Um, And then the shooting, let's talk about the shooting really quick. There's like, obviously we couldn't make a shot like, and we were missing badly, by the way, in it, 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 large, large stretch of this game. It, it was almost as if, like, everyone thought the basket was, like, to the left or right of where it actually was. Because that's how badly we were missing on a lot of these. But beyond that, just, there was the issue of just not taking shots when you were open. And I think Will McClendon, we're, we're back to that, that point where, you know, you're passing up open threes to drive into nowhere. Um, Stefanovic, uh passing up open what looks to be like good enough shots for him to take to drive again right into the middle and 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 Cronin talked about this in the post game which was this is just how USC defends uh they like to pack pack it in and 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 force you to space them out and according to him he they were they prepared for that or rather he tried to prepare him for that and that's not how anyone was playing um, you know, four guys in the middle and everyone's still driving right into the teeth of that defense. Um, very unfocused effort. And that's generally was a takeaway from Cronin's postgame press, presser, which was, you know, for whatever reason, the team wasn't locked in this week. Um, they didn't follow the scouting report. Supposedly they had a big sign uh, when they went over the three points before the game that said, don't let Boogie Ellis beat you. 
and you know the first five minutes he had like 17 points or whatever it was um he ended with 24 on the so night. just a po- yeah so a poor showing all around and i've even i haven't even gotten to our two best players who we need to play well if we're gonna beat any team because that's just the state of the team that's a dembona and dylan andrews well let's let's talk about let's talk about them because i mean look a dembona again was in his typical foul trouble he he got a couple of ticky tacky ones called on him but there was one at the end of the first half that was just i mean we're a broken record at this point it was it was idiotic to say the least um you know that put him that put him out for a long stretch again like it is what it is with him now i don't i don't even want to get into it with with his foul trouble but yeah look the foul trouble is becoming it has been a problem and it it becomes a problem in a game like this where we need him on the floor and he just isn't on the floor because he's on three fouls or four fouls now i i will say let bona foul out like if he fouls out and we have a 10 point lead with him in the game i i think we have a better chance of winning than having him out for like eight minutes of a, a critical uh portion of the game in the middle of it i don't know how that if that will actually play out that way but i, I would like to see how that goes because i have a feeling it might go a little better than having Bona in when we're down six points or something and trying to make up make up a deficit at that point. Dylan Andrews, though, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he that might have been the worst game Dylan Andrews has played as a Bruin. I don't even think might. I think it almost certainly is yeah this that was i think the most concerning thing from the game because what we were hoping for was that dylan andrews would continue to ascend and by the end of the year you think you have one of your lead guards you know at least for the next season if not the next couple seasons and seeing that happen and you know last game to this game you know where it wasn't good for him on both ends uh that's that's disappointing to see because for him uh you hope that you know you we've seen him put kj simpson in jail we've seen him take people out of the game i mean we've and seen him like put Ellis in jail earlier this season right yeah so we've seen all this and then to see this happen, like the up and down nature, that's what we were hoping to clean up by the end of the year. There's four games left, and we're back to this. So that is kind of really hard to take. Bona, like you said, it just it is what it is at this point. Um, we'd love to keep saying that he shouldn't foul, but he is fouling. This game was, I think, the perfect example of like just how much he can dominate when he's in the game. He didn't miss a shot. He didn't miss a free throw. He Had he stayed in the game for, like, I don't know, five more minutes, SC probably has to play small for the rest of the They lost all their big men. Errington Page, who clearly is not ready to play, was 
forced to be in there for like the large stretch of the of the end of that game. So, you know, we can talk about hey, he shouldn't foul it. It's clear what his impact is when he's in the game. He, it it's it's there was no greater example of it than that that game right there. Um, well, and this is but and, the, it, and that's this that's my point, right? Is like. We bench him for such long stretches in the second half. He he didn't foul out in this game, by the way. So even if he fouls out, does that extra five minutes of him being on the floor, being perfect from the field, translating to, you know, maybe six more points that makes up the deficit, maybe some actual defense that helps up make up this deficit. Is that worth him fouling out at the end of the day? I think so. <laughs> like, I just, I, I feel like McCronin treats fouls like an affront to God himself in these situations. And this is a, this is a point. I get it. He shouldn't be fouling. We, that, we've talked ad nauseum about it. But look, if he fouls out with, you know, four point, a few minutes left in the game at that point and we're up, I think we can survive that more so than trying to come back with three minutes left in the game and having him come have to play, you know, rushed or whatever you want to say when we're already struggling. I think there is a better way to manage him than what we're doing for sure, particularly with this team. Um, and, and in general, like McCronin's foul management has been a topic of conversation, you know, particularly, you know, last year the amount of times if like Jaime Hawkes got two fouls like a guy that doesn't foul and you still sit him on the bench like that but Bona I think there's just a better way I think you gotta stagger his minutes um if he's gonna be out there for like 10 minutes like extended at a time he's gonna pick up two fouls in that time so I think one positive and I think the only positive in this game was that Adaimara as the game went on like started to get his scoring uh, scoring going, um, had a positive impact. I mean, on, on offense, at least. On, on defense, it was a layup line. Uh, but he had 10 points. So if there is a way to, I don't know, three on, two off, I don't know what that looks like. But I think you got to do something to where you're not putting him in a situation that, you know, he just has that stretch, the 30 seconds to a minute of madness where he's like, oh, I don't have a foul. And then he picks up like two in the span of twenty four seconds. I, I don't know. Um, it, it's uh, it would be better if Bona made it easier for for everyone. Um, but I think there's just, there is a better way to do this. And, and then to your point, like in the second half, if it's a tight game, I think you just gotta you gotta take the risk because it's clear what you are without him. Roll the dice. That's that's all I have to say. Um... I mean, I'm looking at their stat lines. I mean, look, Bona, Bona, aside from the foul lines, he had a pretty good game. I, it's hard to really criticize him too much. Um, he didn't miss a shot. He didn't miss a free throw. <laughs> he didn't miss a shot. He didn't miss a free throw. He had a block. He did turn it over a couple times. But I, like I said, he had a good game. Dylan Andrews, I think, to your point, that up and down is one thing. But this this was abysmal. I mean, he was 0 for 7 from the field with 5 assists to 5 turnovers. He had a few rebounds in there. But aside from that, 
I don't think you can point to any positive um, contribution here. Like, he wasn't playing good defense. He had three fouls himself. You can't have that from your point guard. Uh, especially, like... And he's going to have to... F- yeah, he, he can't do that. He's going to have to figure this out because the way SC played him is probably how every team's going to play him from here on out. And what what's obvious is that, you know, he doesn't see the pass as easily. And, like, if if, they're, if three guys are pressuring you and they're on you, like, someone has to be open, right? That's just, a, it's just plain math. So he's going to have to figure it out. And I think, generally speaking, his play signifies UCLA's team this year. There is a good team in there if they're all focused and they all, you know, pay attention to detail and don't turn the ball over and all that stuff. Then there is a good team in there. But it's overall the sum of the parts here is not great. Uh, if if they're not up to it on any given night, even against a team as bad as USC, they'll get beat and it won't look good. And, you know, to end this year, Mick Cronin's got quite the task in front of him because it's clear after this game that what we thought was going to happen with uh you know uh the Cronin January surge like this risks being a group where like it's just not a fit for him like they're they're not hearing his voice and it's just not like happening he's got quite the task ahead of him because again we got to go into next year knowing that we can move on with a good chunk of this roster um and what a loss like this does is it, it puts a, a lot of things into question like what are we going to do these last it's not going to we don't have any easy games when in the context of this team um two of these are going to be high level tournament teams so how do we finish can we get some of that positive momentum back because because that's the best way to me to like turn this thing around you, you got to finish some positive momentum you got to find some guys to go to next year that you feel good about that you think okay he's going to start for me next year uh and and so he's got quite the task for these next four weeks yeah it's just very it's it's very strange uh at this point of the season to have this Jekyll and Hyde kind of act going even the Utah game right you mentioned it we lost to a an experienced older team on a last minute way up like we didn't play well but we didn't give up, and we, we played hard, and we, we were, you know, competing. This game didn't feel like that at all. This this was a complete 180 turn on that. It's just, it's bizarre to, to kind of look at this team and say, okay, for, you know, a month and a half, for eight, nine games, it was very clear that Cronin's message was resonating, and they were playing up to his standard and we were winning games because of that and now all of a sudden you lose one game after a long stretch on a last minute buzzer beater and then this is the follow-up i just it's it's really mind-boggling to me that the 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 like whole message gets lost like that like on on a dime it's very, very strange uh, because it seemed like these guys were getting coached up and were willing to be coached up. And all of a sudden, it just feels like it, it, it kind of all got thrown out the window. Um, so I don't, I don't know what it is. It's, it's very interesting to, to observe uh, and also very frustrating to observe. 
Um, yeah, you, you, Co- Coach Cronin's comments post game, I think, say it all. Where this was, I think, a little bit of a different tone, right? He's a lot of you know, hey, I didn't get them ready, and et cetera, et cetera. But then he digs into it a little bit and was very clear that you know this this was their worst week of practice all year. Um, that it was a lot of the habits that showed up in this game showed up in Thursday, Friday practice. Uh, that a lot of the things that happened in the game were on scouting report and they weren't followed. So that to me is like, I mean, as a, as a fan, obviously, then that stuff doesn't make sense to you. But like, you know, it, it's just it. You're proud to play your biggest rival in the biggest crowd of the season and it's not as if you're like it's not as if this is last year's team that didn't lose for like two months and you can afford to have a game like this like that's not what this is so that's dangerous right it's it's, it's what you said uh how does that level of focus go to that like that that's really concerning yeah it's 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 very bizarre. I, I don't even know how to, like, really put, wrap my head around it. I, um, yeah, it is it is concerning to know. And it almost felt like, and I think Cronin mentioned this, you know, he, he talked about humility, right? It almost felt like our guys almost took the previous game for granted. Uh, I don't think they, most of these guys obviously have not been around for, how many times McCronin has lost at Galen Center, right? If you think about the the history now between him and Andy Enfield. Andy Enfield has had a good record against McCronin, especially at home. And so, you know, these it felt like these guys went out there, kicked Southern Cal's ass on their own floor and came back and, you know, lost that game against Utah, but kind of were like, okay, we already beat this team. Like on their home court like we should be we sh- we should be fine and didn't seem to put the effort into the practices and and didn't translate to a game obviously and i think there is a level of humility that every team needs regardless of if you've beaten them or not right i, I think that's what was so rare um with some of the guys we had before, you know, Jaime Hawkes, Tiger, Campbell, all all the other guys you can name, they did have a sense of humility. I mean, you you see Jaime Hawkes even today on on the Heat. He's a rising star, but he's still a pretty humble kid. Um, and for whatever reason, this team doesn't seem to have that, um, and they took this for granted and fell completely flat on their face. That being said, you're looking at the conference standings. Uh, you know we're obviously not going to win anything this year, but what we are still gunning for is that top four seed for the Pac-12 conference uh, championship coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, we're still tied for fourth with Colorado here, and I think we have the the um, the tiebreak over them since we won that game. I think it is, like, absolutely crucial at this point, like, we don't fall apart, because that is still something worth playing for, especially if we want to try to make some sort of noise. We're willing to say just get a top four finish. uh, I hope the the team realizes 
<laughs> but I can't confidently say that they understand right. what's at stake here. Who knows? And to be clear, I don't think that forgives him for this season. But we can get to that season recap uh, once the season ends. Who knows what will happen. But Yeah. Um, yeah, this Washington road trip will be interesting this week. I mean, we start with UW Thursday and then Washington State over the weekend. And we've already beaten UW at home. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Again, do we have the humility to say we've beaten this team once, but we need to, you know, make sure we're locked in because you know, you know, beating them once doesn't mean anything. And then Washington State is really the, yeah, we're gonna the challenge. About, or anything. About, Washington about State is this obviously, team, obviously, it, but they're you know, leading the Pac-12 and are a very good go team moving forward over this can because we're almost done here so can we rise can up they to that occasion to on the road together, to try to steal a, an actual quad season. one win here and, uh, and again we're not we're not competing for an at-large bid but getting that win helps a lot with getting us into a top four seed here and it remains to be seen like which version of ucla is going to show up this week is it going to be the team that you know went on an eight game win streak and played really, really intense defense, uh, rebounded the ball really well, took care of the ball, did not, you know, get flustered when they were missing shots or weren't scoring. Or is this going to be last week's UCLA team that, frankly, can't get anything right? We are going to learn a lot. I um, again, it's going to be an exciting, exciting end to the yeah, season. But it does feel a little bit more frustrating than I think we felt like it did. Even after the Utah game, I feel like after the Utah game, yeah, that sucked. But okay, it 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 is what it is. But um, that that loss particularly felt very deflating, especially with. Uh, with the um, the level of effort that was put out there, and how how many fans actually showed up for that game, I think there was there was a lot of disappointment in that building. Um, we'll see. Real quick, moving on, I think we have, 
UCLA women's team uh, kind of righted the ship a little bit last week. Um, we're back up to a top 10 team. We're, we're number eight now. Uh, it's, is a, it's, a, it's our final home game was actually tonight, and we won. So we beat Colorado again, another ranked team in the yeah, Pac-12. Yeah, it's a good writing like of the ship, and, and, and we won the game the tonight, so that's uh, good. Bracket, right now, we're uh, still. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think look, we're we're result, sitting at what third in the um, Pac-12 in standings right range. now, and you know, you hope obviously, you we're not going to. to be winning range, the the, um, the tournament or then the, the Pac-12 um, outright this year. Uh, I think it's Stanford has basically about. locked that up. Um, but it feels like the momentum is is kind of reshifting back in UCLA's favor um, going into the right time of the year with the conference tournament coming up, with the actual NCAA tournament coming up. Um, and it, I think that's a, obviously a good thing. But especially after the the kind of trials and tribulations we've seen this team go through over the last few weeks, the ups and downs, uh, I think that's a good sign that this team is still. I think that's it. Go Bruins.